0: Well, good to see you this morning. We're continuing with this discussion of the significance of the ascension. And what I'm hoping, and and I, I really do know this, I know for me, and I think for each of you who have been in here, <clears throat> and by the way, if you've missed, please, please go online and listen. If your children missed the class, what would you insist? That they get the homework and something from someone. Why? Because you know how significant it is. This is more significant because it has to do with the structuring, the strength. Of our lives in Christ. And I believe that we have begun to. See. Something of the ascension in a more. Glorious way than we've ever seen it before. How many of you. Are beginning to see the ascension as something that we've really never considered before like this. The most amazing activity of God among all other most amazing activities of God and when we come to the ascension God finally brings all his purpose that began when when did his purpose begin in a time frame Genesis 1 1 from Genesis 1 1 God's purpose in creation is now going to be fulfilled in his people. Because remember, he created for one purpose. That in his people, he would be declared and manifested as glorious. We, therefore, are the receptors, the receptacles, the temple, the very fabric Of the manifestation of the glory of this God. That's why we're here. And so we're continuing to talk about that. Jesus ascends. He is crowned with all authority in heaven and earth. And he is crowned to rule and to reign as Adam was to do but failed. And what Jesus does is to now inaugurate the purpose of God in his people as a reality in them. So that finally, this God who has dwelt kind of among the people and been with the people, but always outside of the people, but, you know, a few occasionally here and there being indwelt, but mostly outside, God's over there in the temple, we're here. Now for the first time, God himself will take up his eternal abode in his people. So that his covenant purpose, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a covenant sentence and statement. Now it's going to be fulfilled. So the last few weeks we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit puts God's eternal covenantial purpose into reality in his people. So let me go to my notes and see where I am after all of that. We've been looking at the five theological pillars. Remember that underpin our salvation as explained in Romans eight twenty nine to 30. Now, we should basically be able to repeat this without too much difficulty. But there are five words here that each one of them are packed full of theological significance. Oh, I have to move on. I'll never get through this at this pace. Foreknowledge. Remember prognosko? The word gonosco in the Greek means to know, to have a personal knowledge. The knowledge knowledge. Of a person, and in the knowledge of that person, obviously comes the knowledge of what that person will do. And so the emphasis of foreknowledge is not upon God knew what we would do, He knew that we would express faith in Christ, therefore He saved us. That's backward. Because where is the emphasis? It's on me, honey child. I did it. I did it. And I called upon God and he saved me. That's not where it's at. The foreknowledge is certainly contained has to do with what you did. But it has to do with what you did because God knows you. Again, I ask, as we've asked before, how many of you have children and you know what they're going to do in a particular circumstance before they do it? How many of you can say, I know that? How do you know that? Because you know your child so well. That's what foreknowledge is. That before the creation, God chose us personally, individually, but corporately. We must not overemphasize individuality. One must emphasize individual in order to be corporate. So a piece of a puzzle is significant only As it is incorporated into the entire puzzle so you pick up the piece of the puzzle that was fallen on the floor and you pick it up certainly you pick it up as an individual piece but you pick it up as an individual piece to be included into the puzzle so that its individuality and its significance as an individual piece becomes absorbed into the entire puzzle are you with me on this too much emphasis on me, my salvation, and I, and uh, it's us, we, together. We are the puzzle of God. It's not just one piece proclaiming himself. It's us together as a unit. Are you, are you with me? Foreknowledge, what comes after foreknowledge? Because God foreknew us, he also what? Predestines us. Predestination is the term... That means that what God has, whom God has foreknowledge, foreknown, whom God has foreknown. Remember that? He guarantees that you're going to be his people. Predestination is the means of God's, if you would, control and oversight and leadership and guarding us. So that those whom God has foreknown will be those whom God has foreknown as his people will be his people. And because he has foreknown you, he has predestined you to be what? Called the great eternal summons of God. Come into my house. Come into my house. Remember what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep hear what? My voice. You know, you know, all the sheep are gathered in this big, big corral outside of Jerusalem. They're all, all the shepherds bring their sheep in. And so how does the shepherd gather his sheep? He makes certain noises and calls. Are you familiar with this? And so when a shepherd makes a certain call or noise, those sheep that are familiar with that call get up and go. The call, the noise, if you would, is heard by all the sheep. But only them to whom who belong to the shepherd respond. The gospel call goes out into all of the world. But in the call, the voice of the Son of God is heard by those whom God has foreknown to be predestined to be called by that gospel call. Amen? Are you with me on this? That means this, that they ain't no sheep that will not hear the master's call. It's impossible for a sheep who is foreknown and predestined, it is impossible for a sheep who is foreknown and predestined not to hear and respond believingly and receivingly to the call of God. Can you say amen? amen? So that means this. Don't be so preoccupied with the way we evangelize and how we come across. That's important. But be more preoccupied with the fact that God is using us as megaphones of his voice with the gospel. And when we share the gospel and when we live the gospel, those who are the for known to be, predestined to be called. They will hear. Amen. They will hear. So that's where we are today. So all of this is great. Let me see where I am in my notes. Ah, but here we come to a major problem. Look at verse 30. Romans 8.30. I don't know. if You may not have your Bible open. You kind of should, but whatever. I don't know if it's in your notes. Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30 says, For whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he also what? Justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Here we come. To the obstacle that is in the way of the call, that forbids the call to be effective and operative. There is something going on that disallows God's call to his people. Not from being heard, but being heard believingly and receivingly. There's a problem here. God calls, but here's a problem. How can a righteous God? Now we need to go over the word righteous again. That means right in any and every category and in every in any instance. Absolutely, in His nature, God is right in everything He does. He's what? In everything he does not do, he's still what? Every decision he makes is, every decision he doesn't make is right. Righteous. He's the only righteous being in creation. But how can a righteous God call an unrighteous people to himself? To be in covenant solidarity with himself. Without denying his own righteousness because when the Bible says that God is just that means that God does everything in keeping with his own nature and character may I repeat that or did you understand it God is just which means that God does everything how much how much how much everything according to his nature and his character. God has never, is not, and will never do even the slightest thing that in any way is contrary to any extent of his nature and character. The moment he does, he ceases to be God himself. Do we see that? There is no... Change in God somebody said that I do not change somebody repeated that and recorded that somewhere Where does it say I Yahweh do not change I the Lord where who said that what prophet said that? One of the prophets would begin with an M you can figure it out It may even be Malachi, but I don't know and so We have a problem here We have a problem How can a holy God the righteous God call an unholy, unrighteous people into Himself in solidarity, and remain true to Himself. How can it happen? How can it happen? Remember what God's righteousness demands. How many of you know what Genesis two seventeen says concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does God say? You, all of these trees. Hey, great. But you see that tree over there, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does God say? You shall what? Not what? Eat of it. And in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Not just die, what? You're going to die. You surely will die. What does Ezekiel eighteen twenty say? The soul that what? Sins shall die. There's the decree of the righteous God. Now, Steve, God has made that decree, and that decree is a function of and a revelation of and the result of his perfect holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. He doesn't make that decree capriciously. Oh, if you don't do what I say, you're in trouble. Because of who God is, he cannot Under any circumstance whatsoever, receive into personal and intimate fellowship anyone who has ever sinned even once. One sin by one man, one time condemned the world. Are you with me? We don't see sin the way God sees it. And it is an enormous weakness in the church. Do we get this? We don't see the extent of sin the way we need to. Just one sin in my life condemns me forever. Why? Ronnie, because God is what? Holy. Because he's righteous. <clears throat> and to overlook one, just one, he's unjust to himself. Any, anybody, everybody see this? We must see who God is in this way. We must see who he is in this way. How many of you would be willing To take an experiment, if the doctor said. And remember, we're made up of what? Billions of cells. Billions, right? Some of us more billions than others, but we're made up of billions of cells. I didn't look at you when I said that. You just smiled. No, no, I wasn't thinking of you. I was thinking of A.J. DeSari. Look, billions of cells. Now, you know a little bit about this. The gene stuff. How many of you would do this? The doctor says, there's an experiment. I will put one, one, just one. How many? One. How many? One. Just, I'm going to put one cancer cell in you, coach. Just one. And we're going to see if we can control this growth. Would you do it? Jamal, would you do it? How many would do that? It's just one, Hemi. Just One. Phyllis is just one, and I have what? Billions. We'd be crazy. I'll give you $1,000. I'll guarantee the Saints win the Super Bowl. ah now we're kind of getting on. What, what? Somebody said something, what? Is it worth me dying? Everybody know Cody back there? He just woke up. Good morning, Cody. Good to see you. Everybody say, good morning, Cody. Yes, you're right, Cody. Is it worth it? God cannot allow one sin in his presence and remain holy and consistent with his own nature and character. Have I said enough this morning? Have you been convinced of this? Hopefully it helps us to understand this better as I try to move along slowly as I am. But what does Romans 3.23 say? Now, listen, let, let's put it in the right context. Romans 8.23 says what? All have what? Sin <clears throat> and all have fallen short of God's glory. Now, stop for a moment. All have sinned. Who is in that all? The foreknown. Those whom God has foreknown are inside that all. It doesn't say all except those whom God has foreknown have sinned, does it, Butch? It says what? Every single person who has ever been born except for one man has sinned. That means that those whom God has foreknown to be predestined, to be called, and then justified and glorified, those folks are in this all. I I don't, we probably haven't read it like that, have we? We were in that all. And because of that, because we were in that all, we absolutely cannot believingly hear and receive God's call. But he does call the unrighteous. I didn't say he doesn't call. We can't believingly receive it. Because of unrighteousness. It stops our ears. It causes us to have a stony heart against God. Unrighteousness. But the scripture that we've been reading, Romans 8:29 and 30, tells us that those whom God has foreknown, He has also predestined and calls into covenant solidarity with Himself. So here's a legal conundrum. And this seeming conundrum brings us to the third. Of these theological terms. All that's just preparation for the word justified. Why have I taken so long? Because I believe we need to make sure that we create a sound and strong basis for the necessity of this work of, called justification. I think. Too often we're too ununderstanding and too weak in the necessity and in the significance of this word justify, justification. The word justify, justification, justify, justified. The verb justify explains how a righteous God can legally, legally predestine and call the unrighteous. Justification is God's legal grounds for calling us into Christ. You see, up to now, we don't need any legal grounds. It's all about God's side. But then all of a sudden we come to our side of it, and there's a massive impenetrable wall before God. And he cannot, under any circumstance, penetrate the wall and remain just unless he deals absolutely and completely and comprehensively. With the unrighteousness of his own people. There are things God can't do. Do you realize that? God cannot do anything contrary to his character. Correct? So when people say God can do anything, that's wrong. He cannot do anything contrary to his character and remain true to himself. So what is justification? It is God's legal or forensic <clears throat> ground for calling us into covenant solidarity, unity, intimacy, and fellowship with Himself. There must be a legal basis for God predestining us. You see, the verb justify is a forensic or a legal verdict. By a judge declaring a person to be judicially or legally not guilty before the law. Why do I emphasize judicially or legally not guilty before the law? Because you see, we as believers need to make real sure that justification does not mean that we are innocent. How many of you know that there have been many folks that the jury said not guilty who were not innocent? Hmm? Does the word not guilty mean you innocent? No. The word not guilty has nothing to do with innocence. The word not guilty has to do with your standing before the law. You see, we are an ever Guilty or not, not innocent people, if you would. We're not not innocent. And there is a judicial declaration by the judge of the world that must be made over each one of us before the bar of God's law that says... In spite of the fact that these people are guilty under the law, God will proclaim them or judge them or declare them as what? Not guilty. In other words, he will justify his people. Are we following this morning? Am I going too fast? Hopefully I'm not too pokey and too fast for you. So what is it? It is not a statement that, James, you now are literally in yourself holy and righteous. You ain't righteous, brother, in yourself. You're as unrighteous a dog as I am in myself. But God has called us to be his people. Meaning what? He must declare us To be righteous. He must cover our literal unrighteousness with a declaration or a judgment or a robe that says this person within the context of this covering is declared by the judge as not guilty. Do we see that? Do we get that it's a forensic term? It's a legal term. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but in Catholicism, they take this word to mean a person must become literally righteous in his own nature in order to stand before God. Therefore, you go through the sacraments, and you have the uh, the sacrament of penance, and you do the days of obligation, and you do all that's needed. And at the end of your life, you haven't quite come to the place of being literally righteous in all of your ways. So you go to purgatory for whatever period of time, and you self-atone through your own suffering for all that sin that you have not purged or you know, gotten righteous if you or whatever word I need you in life so that at the end of it, then you can come into the presence of God because you are literally in your own nature righteous. That's wrong. That's the reason for purgatory. That's wrong. It's wrong. If that were the case, how can an unrighteous man atone for his own unrighteousness? It doesn't even make sense. Because the penalty for any one deed of unrighteousness is eternal damnation. Not just a stint in purgatory for a few million years. Let me skip some of this. So this verdict of righteous, not guilty, is based on the legal ground. Here's the legal ground. God must create a legal ground. Here's how he does it. God must create a legal or forensic basis for his verdict of righteous. The verdict is based on the legal ground that... Yahweh himself in the person of his own son who takes on our humanity as a man because one man sinned, then another man will come and this man whose name is Jesus will fulfill all the righteous demands of God's law on behalf of and instead of his people so that he can be judicially punished on our behalf so that when God sees him as punished and has in God's mind put those whom he has foreknown into this man, you know, relationally. God sees us in this man. So when this man pays the price on the cross for all unrighteousness, which God has laid our unrighteousness upon him, when he pays the price, how do we know when it's paid? John nineteen thirty. It is paid for. Paid for. How much of it? All, all of it. For how long? Forever. And when that happens, God then sees us in his son, who is our representative and who is our substitute at the cross, representing us in his holy, righteous, without sin life and substituting on our behalf payment the payment of the curse of the law, which is death. Amen? He represents and substitutes. And we are there. How do I know we're there? What verse says I was there? I made that up, didn't I? We were there. What verse says that? For goodness sakes, class, come on. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith in the Son of God. Did I miss How did I say it wrong? I said something wrong. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Belinda, you were there. And you didn't even know it. Surely you were there, but you didn't know it. And when we found out about it, it was the day the Holy Spirit birthed us into the kingdom. That's not the day you were in Christ. You were in Christ when he died at the cross. You were in him in the intention and in the foreknowledge of God. Amen? You see, in foreknowledge, he knew us to be his people, knowing we would be an unrighteous people and deciding before the foundation of the world that the Son, according to the Father's will and in joyful Acceptance and submission to that eternal will by the Holy Spirit, we would be saved through the representation of the Son of God in his righteousness and as our substitute in his death so that his absolutely pure, holy, perfect righteousness now is credited to whom? Us. Does that mean we don't sin? How many of you in here stop sinning? Oh, my word. It has nothing to do with the literal activity of sin in me specifically. It is a legal term that says you will mine because I declare you righteous. Yahweh accomplishes this in the person of the incarnate son whom he appointed to be our righteous representative and our divine substitute. Listen to this from Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Is it in your notes? Do they have bold words in there? If you don't have it, circle the word he every time I read it. Surely he. And this is King James, New King James. I like it better than some of the others. It's okay. Surely he hath borne our griefs, he, us. He did it on our behalf for us and carried, what? Our sorrows. I'll skip a few verses. Submitten of God and afflicted, but what? He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. Do you see the substitution here? He was bruised for what? Our iniquities. Do you see the substitution of the Son of God? And the Lord hath laid on him what? Our iniquity. What does that mean? That when Jesus went to the cross, he stood at the cross and he was nailed to the cross representing us. And God saw that as our sin being nailed to the cross. So that when this divine man died, our sin, the curse. Remember the day that you sin, you shall die. Remember Ezekiel 18, 20? The curse was paid for in his death. So that in his resurrection, his eternal life may be given now to his people who have been declared righteous because of his life and death. Justified justification as a result God now judges all who are in Christ if I'm in Christ today will I be in Christ tomorrow yes or no if I'm in Christ today and I will be in Christ tomorrow was I in Christ yesterday and have I in the mind of God always been in Christ That's foreknowledge. We have always been foreknown, but not individually or isolatedly. We've always been foreknown, Jason, only in Christ. We've always been foreknown that way. All the Old Testament saints were that way too, not just the church. And so... As a result, God can now judge all who are in Christ to be what? Judicially righteous with the very righteousness of the Son of God himself. So if I ask any of you, are you righteous? How many at least would even hesitatingly say yes? How many of you, how many of you consider yourselves as righteous? Come on, real. How many of you have a problem with that? Come on. Come on. It's okay to raise your hand. How many of you? This is a this is a challenge to think I'm righteous. Come on, raise your hand. I do sometimes. I have a challenge with this. Why? Because I look too much at whom? Anthony, I'm looking where? In the mirror too much. I am righteous. Now, when I say that mount, my wife shudders. I know this man. Almost 52 years we've been married. How can he say that? And my wife can say, I am righteous and I giggle. Is your wife righteous? Is your husband righteous? Can you say it without smiling though? <laughs> Flo said, Ron is righteous. But say it without smiling, we'll believe you. <laughs> Hope I didn't spit on you. Annette, is Frank righteous? What does that mean? (laughs) Annette went like this. Look at me. She went. (laughs) (laughs) She swallowed. (laughs) Celeste, is Ronnie righteous? All right. The question is not are we righteous? We are. How righteously are we living? Now, that's a different story. And that begins at another time. We'll start talking about that part of it next week. Let me try to do this. Listen to how Ephesians 2, 4 and 6 put it. Remember what we said, in Christ, in Christ, foreknown, in Christ, our representative, our substitute. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. What? When we were dead in our trespasses, when we were dead, this is a long time ago, made us alive together. What? With Christ, union with Christ, covenant solidarity with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up, what? With Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of it is about God. And all of this declares the glory of God. When God justifies a sinner, first, he judges him as forgiven. When God justifies a sinner because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and this comes to us in the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week, he first declares us as what? Forgiven. Forgiven of how much? Colossians 2.13. How many? All trespasses. 1 John 1.7, the last part of it. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from what? All. All of it. Forgiven of how much? All. No more penance. Jesus paid the price. He first does what? Declares us as uh, as forgiven. How? In Christ. Then, not only does he do that, But then look at number two. Do I have that? Do you have it on there? He credits us, declares us with the very righteousness of the Son of God. This means that God has foreknown us to be justified in and by Christ. Therefore, he predestined and called us into eternal relationship with himself. How do we come to experience this? We experience it by faith. How many of you would be careful? Don't raise your hand. How many of you would say, I am saved because of faith? Bamp, bam, 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 bam. Wrong, 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 wrong. How many times must I say that? Wrong. I am saved because of my faith. Wrong, 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 wrong. I am saved because of the righteousness of Christ. Can we begin to get away from putting ourselves into the center of this? That what I do causes my salvation. It's what Christ did. Amen. Amen. We will not tolerate anything less than that because that's where God is. So what is faith? Faith is the gift of God. What does Romans 5, 5 say? We also rejoice what? Anybody know what Romans 5, 5 says? Somebody read to me Romans 5, 5. I don't have any idea what it says. Now, hope does not disappoint because of what? Because the love of God has been what? Poured out in our what? Hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When the Holy Spirit is given to us, Ezekiel, remember 36 verses 25 to 27 Remember those verses? When the Holy Spirit is given to us, he takes that stony heart. Did you see the movie? And he extricates it spiritually in a surgical way and he replaces us, he gives us a heart, spiritual heart transplant, giving us a heart of flesh. In other words, something pliable and living and beating. Therefore, the life of God comes into us When the Holy Spirit does this, that's called being born again, which Jesus talked about in John 3, 3. You must be born again. And when that happens, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Father, I will pray the Father and he will give you, remember the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit brings us as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are also receiving the gift of faith, which means it's a supernatural gift, which means that. I want to surrender and receive believingly that Jesus is my Savior. I'm changed. I'm born again to receive the gift of faith. Listen to me. You're going to hear it preached backward. I'm born again to be able to exercise faith, to receive. Faith is not a work. It's a receiving. How many of you tell your children, I will give you a gift if you do one, two, three. Is that a gift or a wage? If you ask me, I will give you a gift. Is that a gift or a wage? Which one is it? Where does it emphasize what? The the, the child who asks. God doesn't say, if you ask me, I'll save you. That's not a gift. That's a wage. Born again, if you would in this context, produces faith. Faith does not produce born again. Faith does not produce born again. Faith is a result of being born again, which receives Christ. Are you with me on this? <clears throat> We must be sure to undo the man-centered preoccupation with what we do and what we must do and how we must do it. If you will come down to the altar and if you will ask Jesus to save you, he will. Where in the world does that say that? If you will take this step and do something, Jesus will save you. Warren, is that the gospel? This is the gospel. Jesus takes the step into your life. And as a consequence of being in your heart and in your soul by the spirit, he gives us the ability to say, yes, to this gift of eternal life. Why in the world do you think you got saved? How did you receive it? Because you asked Jesus. You better get your thoughts better than that. You got saved because Jesus saved you at the cross and called you into his kingdom. You didn't call him to come to you to bring you in. You don't call the king of glory. The king of glory calls us. And if he called us into his kingdom guess what? The one who has the power to call me into his kingdom is the same one who has the power to what? Keep me in his kingdom. Because you see, if you made the determination to call and as a consequence of what you did and you took the step and you got into this thing, therefore you're saved. If you did that, then you can also make a step, a decision, what? To step out. You see, Noah didn't say, God, I want you to do something and save us. And then God said, oh, okay, I, I, well, let's build an ark. <sighs> okay, you want me to, oh, yeah. God built the ark through Noah. God led Noah in. God shut the door. Remember the eight people who were in it? You saw the movie? God did it all. They were in the ark. We are in the ark of safety. His name is Jesus Christ. And it's the ark that they are in that is lashed back and forth by the fury of God's anger against sin. And they come out safe on Ararat, the mountain of God. And we come out safe on Mount Zion, the mountain of God. We're in the ark, and we got in it not because... We call, I want to get in the ark. I want to, you know, will you call me into the ark? No, God says, all my people hear my voice, come into the ark of safety. And we came in. Why? Because God called us, not externally, We certainly through a word we heard, but internally in our hearts because he changed our hearts. Therefore, brother, you said yes to Jesus. This is all of God. It's all for God. And it's all from God. Who's the beneficiary here? God is in Christ. The primary beneficiary, I should say. He is. So let me do the summary. <clears throat> the legal basis for our justification is the righteousness of Christ. Did we get it? Did we get that this morning? The means of receiving God's legal verdict is his gift to us of faith. Remember? For by grace you have been saved through what? DIA, D-I-A, through the means of receiving faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself should any man boast. Therefore, we are justified by the righteous life of Christ and receive God's judicial verdict by the gift of faith that Christ in Christ alone. And where do we get the gift for faith? When the Holy Spirit comes into us in being born again. This means that God's foreknowledge is not conditioned on our faith, but our faith is conditional on God's foreknowledge. Is that good news or not? I'm secure in Christ. I'm secure in Christ. The word glorified at the end. Last word in that verse 30. Those who be glorified. Because we've been glorified, God's verdict of all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God has been overturned. I'm going to keep the word glorified to a further time down the road and talk about it at another time. Okay, is that okay? So, one more point: These five words are in the aorist, A-O-R-I-S-T, the aorist tense, which means it is a completed past action of God that has continuing present-day effect. This is a done deal, if you allow me to say it that way. Why? Because God has done it in Christ. Determining it before the foundation, making it right on um, the actual in the, found, uh, in the uh, world and applying it by the spirit to be fully culminated in eternity. See you next week.